Two weeks ago, we started this new series looking at Ezra and Nehemiah by talking briefly in one week about how you approach historical narratives in Scripture. You look differently upon the historical books in Scripture than you do, say, the Gospels, than you do, say, the Epistles. And we talked about how you, how you read, how you interpret, and then finally how you apply these historical stories. Because you remember we said they're not just historical records. They're not just documents that list what happened here, here, and here, and this year, under this king, this king, and this king, for the sake of a record itself. You see, the Bible, in its historical narratives, they always have this overarching, this, this underlying purpose, this divine author behind it that recounts the history, yes, but recounts the history with a goal in mind, namely to glorify God and His workings throughout humanity. Last week we jumped in, Ezra chapter 1, and we looked at the faithfulness of God in the very first verse in the recount of Ezra, the chronicler here, the narrator, if you will, the storyteller. Ezra says in the very first verse that there is a king behind the king. And he recounts the edict of Cyrus, Cyrus being the, the king of the Persians who conquered the Babylonians and freed, if you will, the Jewish nation, freed them to go back and to rebuild their own to save his people. Specifically, an example through his chosen nation of Israel for all of us to learn from. This week, let's pick it back up. I'm going to read to you the first four verses again just so you understand where we're going and we're going to go today and uh, knock out all of chapter 2. All right, So read it with me. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't actually have a Bible, then take one of those. Keep it. Write your name in it. Do as you will with it. It's our gift to you. Ezra chapter 1. The record keeper says this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. That's the, that's the divinity behind the human king. By the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, that's by mouth, and also put in writing, that's the legal tender of the day, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold and with goods and cattle and with valuables aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus himself brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithrethda, the treasurer, and he counted them out, to Sheshbazar, the king, or the prince, excuse me, of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. And all the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these... This is where we're going to focus our attention today. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem 
and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, also could be translated Joshua, Nehemiah, who is not the Nehemiah of the next book we'll go into, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, who is not the Mordecai of Esther. A lot of common names in Scripture. And then you get this full list, and it would be a, uh, it would be a real exercise in pronunciation for me to read the rest of chapter 2 to you. So let's flip over. I want you to pick it up in verse 60. Assembly numbered 42,360. Besides their male and female servants who numbered 7,337. And they had 200 singing men and women, their horses, 736, their mules, 245, their camels, their donkeys, some of the heads of the father's households when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and a hundred priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. All right? That was a lot. That was a lot. And there are many directions we could go this morning. All right? Many. For example, we could look at in this passage the very uh, obvious provision of God that has come alongside His promise fulfilled. Did you see that? That God, in fulfilling His promise, doesn't just open the door, He paves the way. And so you get in the earlier verses, you get the friends and neighbors of those who are returning to their homeland. They start anteing up, man. They start coming out of their own pockets to give on the assurance. Well, let me back up. Uh, I'll get to that in just a second. We could also focus on uh, this list of noted patriots and some of their stories. I mean, this, this list here that we tend, and even this morning, uh, for the sake of time and, and me embarrassing myself trying to pronounce all these, we, we gloss over their names. But here's what I want you to remember, okay? In your own personal study, remember this. That being that the entirety of Scripture is divinely inspired, these names are all here for some reason. And you may have to dig deeper to find out why all of them are there but even the entirety of the list, the list itself, the fact that it's there, God has a purpose behind why it's there. Okay? We could go into some of the individual stories of these individuals. We could talk about the uh, 128 men of Anathoth mentioned in chapter 2, verse 23. We could talk about these men. This land of Anathoth is mentioned in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32 is this great story of, you remember, Jeremiah is a prophet who is even before the captivity of Israel into Babylon. So before Babylon takes over the nation of Israel and destroys the temple, burns Jerusalem, about 20 to 30 years before that ever happened, Jeremiah is the guy who God sent and says, repent, turn from your wicked ways or something bad is going to happen. I'll have to discipline you. They don't listen, you remember. And Jeremiah says, okay, hear of the Lord in Jeremiah 32 to Jeremiah. Very interesting story. He comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy a piece of land in Judah. I want you to buy a piece of land in this region that Babylon's going to come and wipe out. And the inference is, God, why would I buy land if a storm's about to come and devastate it? I mean, if it's a sinkhole, why would I buy it? Right? You tracking with me? 
God says, buy it, Jeremiah, as a sign to the people that it will be worth something one day. You remember last week I showed you in Scripture some of the prophecies of Jeremiah that bad times were coming. But he always added on. He always tacked on at the end. They're not going to last for all time. There's always a promise in the pain. And God says, I will come back. I will restore you. And through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, he says, buy this land and you hold on to it because one day you'll be able to come back to it. That's this land. These 128 men of Anathoth, they're descendants of Jeremiah and they're going back to claim their land. We could focus on more stories like that in the list. We're not going to this morning. We could focus on the assurance of continuity between the pre- and post-exilic nation of Israel, and that was a mouthful, right? Let me, let me say he exterminated, because God has promises he has to fulfill to the nation of Israel. And if they're totally wiped out, he can't fulfill them. So just the fact that this list is there, that we have descendants, we have this, this next generation of promised, chosen people, Ezra's readers would take heart and be encouraged that God is faithful, and he is faithful throughout the generations no matter what storms may come. God always holds a remnant to fulfill his promise. And so this would be of great encouragement and assurance to link the pre-exilic, those who, who lived in the nation of Israel under the promises before Babylon came and wiped them out, and those who are now coming out of captivity to say, you know what, God has kept this thread by which to fulfill his promises. God is faithful. We're not going to spend more time on that. Instead, I want to draw our hearts and minds to a people only implied in this text, although I believe the original writer and the divine author would both have us to note their presence or their lack thereof. There is a large group that is inferred in this text, in this list, as the chronicler notes all of those who go back there is to Ezra's readers this glaring gap. And there ought to be for us as well. There are, through Ezra and Nehemiah, as we added up, about 50 to 60,000. Turn, we don't see a mass coming from these 10 other tribes. We see pieces of the Levites coming and the priests. But mainly, primarily, we see the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, in our context here, returning. So the glaring gap is this. 50 to 60,000, by the end, when we get through Ezra and Nehemiah, 50 to 60,000 Jews, when the floodgates are opened and the edict of Cyrus, by mouth and by written decree, comes out and says, you are allowed to go home now and rebuild your temple, rebuild your homes, rebuild your way of life, worship your one true God, 50 to 60,000, out of an estimated 2 to 3 million in exile, actually takes Cyrus up on his offer. So there is this, to Ezra's readers and to us as well, this, this glaring gap. And the natural question for us is, and here's where we're going to focus the rest of our time this morning, is why? Why only this, what would it be, 25 to 3% of God's people return? Take advantage of this miraculous act of God. Well, there are a few reasons. There's one I want to focus on here in just a moment. Storyteller, the chronicler, the narrator, interjects just a small phrase 
into the historical narrative that gives us a glimpse of the divine. It gives us a glimpse of not just what's happening on earth, but what's happening in the heavens, what's happening behind the curtain, if you will. Ezra 1, verse 5, Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, and here it is, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred, those went up to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So we ask this question, why? Why only fifty to 60,000? Why such a small number go back? One apparent reason through our context could be this, this reference, as is often the way of the author of this narrative. One answer could be that those are the ones that God stirred in their hearts. And again, he, he pulls back the curtain to give us a, a glimpse of the divine providential activity of God moving among the activity of men. Let me show you something else here. Down a little bit further in verse 6, all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, gold, and with goods and cattle and valuables. That's the part where it says that Cyrus has decreed. Incidentally, this was not part of the order of God. Cyrus says, listen, all you who are neighbors... All you Jews who aren't going to go, you give hint. Okay? Now track with me here. One answer could be that uh, God has stirred in the hearts of some, and some he has simply not. God has motivated providentially some to return, and some he has not. Now, let me caution you here. There is a, a convenient enough theology that comes out of this that uh, is, I think, often misapplied that says and sees this passage and, and some others uh, in the light of our, well, let me put it this way, God's missional strategy. That God has this missional strategy to reach the world and he applies it to the church and he applies it to Israel and he applies it to us that says something like this, that God calls some to go, but then there's, there's this other group of us that he permits to stay behind, pay and pray. Okay? Now that is, that is true enough in some sense that God specifically calls people to go and to tell and to be on the front lines of battle, so to speak. And there are those who he uses to equip. Uh, military uh, statistics tell us that for every one man on the front line, it takes ten men back home to keep them equipped. So there is this, this idea that you... The context of this book of this passage, is that God called them all to return home. Now, not all of them did. But the emphasis in this passage is that he blessed those that did. Those who were obedient to the call, he even caused them to be blessed by those who just hung out and stayed behind. All right. So one possible answer could be that God stirred in some and he didn't in others. Be careful there. Let me go to the answer that I want us to focus on today. Why did some not go Historians tell us, tradition tells us, if we examine captivity and what captivity meant for the nation of Israel under the Babylonians, we find out another reason, a more practical reason, if you will, that only 50 to 60 out of millions returned. And here it is. It's very simple. Two generations. Remember, 70 years the nation of Israel found themselves in captivity. Seventy years, two generations have been born in captivity 
born outside of their own land. The goal of the Babylonians was to, in a sense, breathe their own personal Jewish identity out of existence, that they would become Babylonians. Many of them uh, would receive Babylonian names in addition to their Hebrew name. You see that throughout the Old Testament. Daniel's a, uh, an example of that. He received a Babylonian name as well. So you have this picture of these two generations now, now, now of their own people. Their identity nationally has, in a sense, been bred away. But here's one thing I want you to understand and be clear on. This captivity is not uh, slavery in the sense that we, we think of slavery. You see, Babylon, uh, although they, they used the Jews for menial labor and as slaves, as we would think about slaves, for the most part, the Babylonians tried to assimilate the Jews, make them to be Babylonians, not have their own national identity, but they wanted the Jews to flourish as Babylonians. So here's what this means. They wanted those who came in exile to be successful. Point, many were. Many were. Through two generations, you see historically many Jews who have been planted now in a land that's not their own, grow up in a culture that is not their own, embrace the culture that is there, make the best out of it, and they flourish. Uh, we know this to be true uh, through, throughout history. If you were to look at Nobel Peace Prize winners, if you were to look at prize-winning scientists, mathematicians, if you were to look at uh, the most excellent uh, in any of the professional fields, doctors, lawyers, etc., even in our own country, I heard a study once that just went through the percentage now. Why is it that 50 to 60,000 came back, but the majority, an overwhelming majority, stayed? They were comfortable in their captivity. They were comfortable in their captivity. They were comfortable in their captivity. All right, now you guys are smart people, right? And I don't have a lot of time. You know where I'm going with this. You've probably jumped ahead of me and you've already applied this. You see the natural implications of being comfortable in your captivity. It is not for me to uh, discern or to understand or to know in whom God is stirring and in whom God is not stirring. Okay? It is for me to be about the business of proclaiming both in mouth and in the word that the eternal father through a king has kicked open wide through his decree, an avenue by which those who are in bondage, those who are afar off, those who are in captivity can return home. Let me say it clearer. God in heaven, through Jesus the King, by way of the cross, and the word has gone out, both through the word and through the proclamation of the prophets, the apostles, and those of you who step up to that responsibility even this day, the word goes out. And God is stirring among the people of this world. Come home. Come home. There is a way. There is a miraculous way. A way that you could never make yourself. Only God can get the credit for the way. There is a way. Home.
from slavery, captivity to your sin, to freedom. Free to worship the one true God. To freedom. A guy named George W. Truitt. He was a well-known pastor in Texas and uh, even one of the former presidents of Southwestern. Is that right? George W. Truitt? Yeah. I believe he was the president of Southwestern Seminary. Seminary that Preston and I went to. Um, there's a story about George W. Truitt, and I'll end on this. It goes something like this, that George W. Truitt, one of his more affluent parishioners, man has acquired. And he says this to Truitt. He says, 20 years ago, I had nothing. He said, look this way. All the cattle that you see in all that land is mine, as far as your eye can see. Look this way. All that forest there, as far as you can see, that's mine. Look this way. All the crops that you can see, as far as your eye can see, that's mine. Look this way. It's all mine. And in a, a way that only George W. Truett could he listened in silence as this man pointed out all of his all the things he had acquired in this world all of his comforts if you will he put his hand on his shoulder put one hand pointing to heaven and he said yeah but what do you have that way what do you have that way the story says that the man hung his head and he said I've never thought about it that. I've never thought about that. A couple verses come to mind. Proverbs 14 says, there is a way that seems right unto men, but the end thereof leads to destruction. There's a way of living this life here on earth that seems normal, right to us as humans. Remember though, want to follow me. You, You have to lay down, you have to lay down Everything of this world that calls and beckons to you, you've got to lay it aside. He goes on to say this, What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and, pro- and forfeit his soul? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Alright, so why? Why, as God is stirring among His people, and the divine decree has gone out, the proclamation has gone out, a way has been made to come home, i got to ask myself, why is it that obviously, seemingly, there are few who are taking advantage of this miraculous gift? I believe the answer is the same. Some of us are just comfortable in our captivity. We've been here We've been here our whole life. We've been here our whole life. We've grown up in it. We've flourished in this world, perhaps. Time where God is being patient towards us in our sin, not desiring that any of us would perish, but that we might come home, if you will, and be saved. 
None of us are promised tomorrow. And if that is the case for us, then the rest of this stuff, the rest of this stuff is of no consequence to us. It makes no difference to us. There is no worth in it. I'm praying that your eyes would be opened to that truth. For those of us who have come here today um, as an afterthought, not because our hearts are longing to sing praises to King Jesus who has provided the way via the cross. I pray for you that your eyes, your heart is awakened, that you see this temporal is not it. It's not it. There is this this bigger thing. It's called eternity. And God is working in the midst of his people, stirring in the hearts of men and women, crying out, come on home. I've made a way when there was no way. Come home. That's the heart of the Father. Now it is, it is on you to have enough courage who are willing to listen. Would you stir hard in our hearts that those who maybe have not quieted their soul enough to hear your eternal decree of freedom Lord would they hear it this morning and would they respond would they be courageous enough to listen for that still small voice that says that while we were yet enemies Christ provided a way a way to freedom a way home in Jesus name Amen